Welcome to Law of Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you very much for being with us today. Today, we're lucky to have in the studio Mr. Alex J. Higgins, Seattle lawyer. Uh, welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Mike. So, Alex, um, tell us about you. You you, uh, you, and I have known each other for, shoot, 20 years. Tell us about your, your law practice and what you do. Well, I started out working at a firm where I learned the ropes and represented mainly employers. And that's really good training for any lawyer is to work on behalf of a corporation with other lawyers who know what they're doing. Uh, and then um, started my own firm, and I've been representing mainly employees and executives since then in all kinds of disputes, uh, contract negotiations, severance negotiation, non-compete issues, and, and so forth. Yeah, so uh, you were quoted uh, recently in the Seattle Times about a non-compete bill in the Washington State Legislature. Tell us about that. Well, there was a bill introduced to uh, limit the use of non-competes, not go as far as California that says they're illegal, but to really uh, uh, clamp down on them. And, and it went through a very various amendments and permutations where it basically got gutted by the time it got to a vote. But one of the provisions that we thought had a good chance of passing was to say that you can't have a non-compete for anybody making less than $50,000 a year. That's sort of one right. reasonable cutoff. Um, and then there were other provisions that, that got added on and changed. And, and so basically it got watered down. But right now there is more discussion about non-compete reform uh, in the legislature than I've seen in 20, 25 years. So it's, it's, it's promising for making some changes, uh, from our perspective at least, but uh, there are a lot of businesses like Microsoft and Amazon that carry a lot of weight in this town, and they're against changing uh, the rules. Yeah. So for those in the audience who don't know, in California has a really simple law. I mean, the the entirety of the of the section is not very long. It's maybe 20 words. It just says restraints of trade in the context of hiring someone for services are illegal. It's just something very broad. And then there's a much longer sentence or a paragraph which deals with the exclusions from that when you buy somebody's business. Mm -hmm. But the California uh, Prohibition on Competes Law is, is, is just, it's nice in its simplicity. It is. And we are mired down in incredible complexity, which is great job security for lawyers because we get to argue about it all the time. But there are things like, is it reasonable? is one of the standards for the law. Well, guess how, how long lawyers can argue about what's reasonable and what isn't. So I think there's a big problem for businesses personally in that there's a lack of certainty in the law. And I think certainty is helpful to businesses for planning purposes. So in California, for example, you can have a non-solicitation agreement. You can say, don't talk to our customers, our Ooh, clients. I, I thought I thought you could have a non-solicit in California, but only with regard to hiring, like trying to lure away your former coworkers. But with regard to soliciting customers, clients, I thought, I thought that was also illegal in California. I don't think so. Well, obviously, I don't practice in California. But let's say, let's take it uh, outside of California and just into a hypothetical sure set of laws that you could have, which is you could say you can't have this broad non-compete that says you can't work in this profession, but you can protect your trade secrets. And a customer list might be a trade secret. We know that from trade secret yeah, law. Yeah, for sure. So you can protect things, intellectual property, uh, customer lists, those kinds of things. And you can have, let's say you can have reasonable non-solicits. I think that would be much clearer than a non-compete, which a court is then going to come in and blue pencil, cut it down if it's too broad. And it's the courts just don't have enough guidance. You're really doing the crapshoot of who you're going to draw at King County Superior Court. And guess what? 
in our jurisdiction at least, most of the time you have judges who've been prosecutors and criminal defense lawyers and don't know anything about civil law. So you're asking a complete stranger without a lot of training and business experience to decide your case. That's scary. Right. Yeah. So the, uh, of course we saw, it seems to me that, um, first of all, I think in, in Washington State, because non-competes are illegal, I think most companies uh, employ them to one degree or another. Uh, Mike, is that your experience or? Yeah, I always tell the folks that I work with that they should be pick, they should pick and choose who they use non-competes with just so that, it, because from my, my understanding is that it helps with enforceability. But so generally it would be, we still use them in employment agreements or, uh, or particularly in contractor agreements if the person doing the work is touching anything that's like, you know, truly, you know, crown jewels or proprietary to the company that gives them, you know, their, their significant advantage over their competitors. That that's sort of where we tend to use it. And that we certainly, you know, use it a bunch of times, always try to advise folks that the, uh, you know, that, that the law doesn't really favor that sort of thing. And so you're just kind of trying for it to see what happens, but I don't know. How does that, how does that match up Alex with, with your experience? Well, my experience sound about is, right. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, I think you're right. We have this blue pencil rule in Washington, which means that even if it's too broad, a court is not going to throw the whole thing out, but is going to reduce it to the reasonable amount that should be enforceable. So I think Microsoft and Amazon have taken the approach, for example, of writing pretty broad non-competes, not long in duration. They're 12 months or 18 months. I mean, something reasonable in duration, but otherwise fairly broad um, as to their def- definition of what their business consists right. of. I mean, right. Amazon does basic sells basically everything and is doing cloud computing and so forth. But Microsoft and Amazon, I think, are smart and selective about the cases they try to enforce. So there's lots of people who are technically violating their non-compete, in my opinion, when they leave Amazon or Microsoft. But they, they just they're not sued because what's the point? Right. Wow. You know, another thing you could we could talk about here, Alex, is the the, the moonlighting provisions of the of the statute, which allow you to, this is a question that comes up frequently for us is, you know, we'll have somebody who's, you know, working at a big company uh, and they'll want to do something in the evening or on the weekends or whatnot. And they'll be concerned about, you know, keeping it theirs. And it's funny, Silicon Valley did a whole episode on this. <laughs> I don't know if you saw it, but you know, our statute says basically like, Hey, if you're, it's against public policy for an employer to attempt to assert IP rights over something you do on your own time with your own equipment without reference to your company's trade secrets. Right, it, it, and there are some vagaries in this exclusion, right? And in the episode Silicon Valley, Mike, I'm not sure if you've seen it. Um, the, I watched the show. Which episode? You know, was there it? was an episode where uh, you know the the CEO of uh, of uh, Pied Piper he 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 inadvertently ran one test. He like ran one test on a on a Huli mainframe or something, or a Huli computer mm-hmm. from from his office, yep. and that became like a big right. problem in some ar- arbitration. That's right. That <laughs> yeah, what, what's funny. the you know? It's so perfect to see that that show up in like in a in a show that everybody you know everybody in our space seems to watch. So it's like a great education because like it's it's a perfect uh, perfect example of just like a tiny little slip up causing a huge problem. That's yeah, you got to so keep it separate. True. That is so true. And what I tell people so frequently is buy another computer, buy another phone, because people have a phone and they use it for business and they use it for this other side business or their personal. And I tell people, if you have a company issued computer or if the company buys it, even if it's not issued, they, they reimburse you for that computer. Right. You know, it's their property. If you want to start doing stuff, moonlighting, other stuff, looking for a job, anything else, Buy another computer. It would be the best investment you ever make that 500 bucks or 1000 bucks on another separate personal computer. Right. 
Well, I think phone thing sounds interesting, right? Because like then you're walking around with two phones. You look like a you got like your burner phone and your regular <laughs> phone. I just I, it's it's great advice, but it also probably makes you look kind of like a badass when you're rocking around work. Be like, oh, hang on, that's my other phone. This is the phone I use for for the uh, for the other thing. That's the, <laughs> that's my bat, bat phone. It's yeah. that's my bat phone. That's my burner. Yeah, yeah. Well, what pains me about the non-compete issue is I I, I personally know of a, a person who was working at a big company. He got he got an offer at what was then a, a, a smaller a, but you know potentially very significant emerging company and uh, he was bound by an occupant with his big company and uh, and he was trying to negotiate a, a deal with the the new company that would indemnify him if he was sued um, which is something you can do if you're an executive moving you can ask your new employer to cover the costs of your defense if you're sued in the filing you're not compete. But anyway, in the midst of negotiating that, the company hired somebody else um, from a different jurisdiction out of a large investment bank. And so he didn't get the job. And uh, it, the value of the equity that he would have received had he been able to take that job, uh, it, it would have been $20 million in, in equity value that he would have accumulated, assuming he'd kept the job and performed in accordance with the prior. So this literally cost this guy $20 million bucks. And so you know, if you think about things, you think about society, you think about law from the point of view of the individual, the worker, that's that's horrible. This is horrible public policy. Non-competes are horrible public policy from the perspective of the individual. Right. If this ever came to a vote uh, in the public and the public knew what they were voting on, it would be remarkable to see uh, how that could, how you could lose. Yeah, you no, could lose uh, a uh, referendum yeah, or initiative. Exactly. So that. all we need to do is have people fund an initiative. Get it on the ballot. And like everybody works. Everybody, every individual works. Who wouldn't vote for this thing? I'll tell you, nine out of ten people who come to me with a signed non-compete say, well, could you look at this? I hear these aren't enforceable anyway. Right. So most people are out there believing already that these things are unenforceable in Washington. And that's a the speech that I've made countless times I'm tired of making, which is, well, actually... It might be enforceable. Let's let's talk. Let me ease you into the reality that you have this signed contract, and we need to deal with it. This isn't just a throwaway provision. Yeah. Well, one argument that uh, Chris Devore makes at Founders Co-op here in Seattle is, hey, I mean, one reason the reason why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley is because we have a very very fluid labor mar- labor market. Uh, talent does not get trapped or locked in um, by virtue of some kind of contract like this. Talent can just go to a better opportunity. And and that is actually, I think, a fairly compelling argument. I mean, we one of the reasons why the U.S. economy uh, is such a great job engine or has historically been is because of the fluidity of the labor markets. Well, and I think that's absolutely right. And I think Microsoft and Amazon recognize that with each other. I challenge you to find a case where one of them has sued the other on a non-compete. And their talent flows back and forth frequently. Amazon and Microsoft. And I don't, I'm not saying they have some kind of uh, explicit conspiracy. I have no knowledge of that or whatever. Right. But I bet they both recognize that the fluidity of talent in this town is important to both of them. Yeah. And that they don't want to restrict each you other. Know, speaking, you know? of, speaking of, there was a conspiracy in, in Silicon Valley where a bunch of the tech companies got together and decided to tacitly not to, not to uh, hire people from other similarly situated companies. And that case was, uh, I'm forgetting, I mean, you could search for it. I mean, right. um, Apple was involved. I mean, there was there were some some things that were not done correctly down there in that regard. But that was probably bad for business, as you said. I mean, I think ultimately it's better for businesses to find employees that are better fits for them. 
I mean, why do you want to lock in talent? Yeah, you spent some money in training and so forth. And I think there's some, I think there's some validity on the employer side. But I think what really gets judges is when people walk out with stuff downloaded oh, on their sure. last day. Sure. You know, yeah, their it's... last day they're downloading things, they're printing things. That's what turns judges over the edge yeah. and they go, wait a minute, this is a bad actor here right. who's walking out with yeah, stuff. Yeah, in fact, I think I think the former CEO, well, this is, again, maybe a dozen years ago now, I think the, one of the former CEOs of, of one of the uh, big European car manufacturers left with a bunches of boxes and he was, he was actually, I think, indicted and thrown in jail or something. But he left with like a, he left with like a lot of stuff. I mean, boxes of, of like research materials and stuff. Yeah, horrible Terrible mistake. They made it a crime. They passed a federal law, the Economic Espionage Act, which is a very fancy name to say don't steal things from your previous employer, intellectual property. Um, I'm not sure how many prosecutions they've had under that, but it's sort of a tool for people to, to throw out there in really bad cases, really heinous cases of leaving with boxes of confidential information. Yeah, yeah. Well, interesting. So the Nocopete legislation in Olympia this year didn't go anywhere. Didn't, did it ever come to a vote or...? Uh, I don't think it ever got to a vote, and what happened was it was so watered down by the time it got out of committee that nobody was really excited I about it. I saw one bill, it only literally only applied to like hairdressers, and uh, I mean, there was, a, there was like spe- very specific vocations that were identified, and there was only like four of them, and it was like people who cut hair and like other, there was such a small group of people, I mean, all of them should, I mean, the idea of subjecting a you know, somebody who's doing hair to a non-compete sounds absurd, but it does, it does happen. These companies, I mean, it does happen. These people making thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars a year, cutting hair, uh, renting a chair at a place where really they're just making what they bring in anyway. Right. Um, and then they're tied up in a non-compete. Um, I, you know, I actually could see a hair salon having a legitimate reason to say, don't open it up across the street. I mean, I could see sort of a one block radius rule, but that's just, that's making it too complicated. I like the idea of just cutting off the south, you know, at a certain, you either make a certain amount or you don't. I, th- uh, I think Oregon does that, doesn't it? I think they do, yeah. I think Oregon has a rule, Mike, which says uh, you can only do it for certain, for people who exceed a certain amount in income. And then even, I think even for those people, you have to give them notice you have to give them the give them the document and notice like a week or week or two before they start work or it's not effective or something. Right. I think you know. I, I actually think companies who rely on non competes get lazy about their confidential information. So what I mean by that is under the Trade Secrets Act, which is your strongest protection, you know, you password you need to password protect things, mark things confidential. I think that's a much stronger approach than uh, relying on a non compete where you're. You're just rolling the dice with the court. Um, I, I don't know enough about technology to know the answer to this, but I suspect there are ways to monitor people's employees' use of your information via your server that is going to be really much more effective than a non-compete in terms of presenting the judge with the kind of things that that really makes the judges mad. Mm-hmm. Like look at what they've downloaded from the server in the last week of their employment, right. that kind of thing. And I would I think um you know, employees come to me and they talk to me about they want to change and I always tell them be honest and upfront with your current employer. Say I'm going to a competitor. Don't try to hide it. And I think people get distrustful when they find out they've been lied to later. And I think it's more important to come forward and say, look, I'm thinking about going to a competitor. I mean, when you're ready to be walked out the door. 
Right. I mean, you're not going to last probably another day once you make that announcement. But right. to be honest about where you're going and what you're doing and tell them, reassure them, I'm not taking anything with me that's confidential. I don't plan on using anything confidential, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think that's just a better place to be in as an employee leaving to go to a competitor. Mike, any experience with that? No, I mean, it definitely sounds um, – I mean, I definitely when – I, when I left my – my various positions. I definitely talked with folks about about the fact that I was leaving before I did. Um, so, I think in general, I think that's a good policy. Um, I'm, I think what you just mentioned about you know protecting yourself as a company by kind of keeping good measures to to kind of keep track of what people took or what they accessed in the weeks before they left. That sounds kind of genius to me because. Um, I don't know. It's it's just it happens without you needing to put anything special in place with employees. You can track that kind of thing, and if if when they leave, they really do cause damage to you in some way. It does feel like you're hitting them with a, a claim that's that's more trade secret based, and and it seems like there's you're not kind of going into court trying to fight something that's disfavored by the law. You you, you can like your all your arguments are based on things that don't really have this this baggage associated with it. Right, you kind of have the moral high ground, which is what you want in court. You want to come in as being the injured party, not the big bad company that's trying to keep this poor man or woman from making a living. Right. Yeah, it sounds sounds really smart. Yeah, the only the only downside, I guess, would be it, it, without the non compete, there may be less, um, maybe advance notice to the people that are doing the hiring. I guess you'd assume that that, or you'd hope that a company hiring a company away from somebody else would want to know the landscape there. Um, but at least with a non-compete in place, you know that that employee is going to have a conversation with the new employer and say, hey, well, I've got this contract and there's some serious restrictions in it. So we need to make sure you don't, you know, maybe you don't uh, assign me to this particular project for a certain period of time or, you know, at least the conversation happens. If you don't have any kind of non-compete, maybe they go to the next employer and the employer says, do you, got it? Do you have any restrictions? Do you have any non-competes? And they say, no, I'm free to come work for you without realizing that they're like, they've set themselves up by, by taking a bunch of documents on their way out the door. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. interesting. That, that is interesting that you want them to have to give the non-compete to the next employer they go to. Usually that's it's a, a confidential document, right? I mean, usually that yeah. document. But, but just have the conversation to say like, hey, just so you know, I've got this non-compete, you know, I've, I've uh, or maybe they say I want the indemnity. Maybe they just, you know, they have the discussion because employers usually will ask, right? Like maybe it's in the employment agreement that you're not subject to restrictions on, you know, there's nothing that would conflict with no, no contractual obligations that would conflict with the employment. Well, um, so, so having the non-compete prompts them to have to answer that. Yes. And Joe makes a, make a really good point, which is, is that a confidential document that you're not supposed yeah. to show to somebody? Yeah. Is it question? That's or is point. it not? And I've seen it written both ways. And I think the smarter way to write it is to say, you must show this to any prospective yeah. employer. Yeah. In fact, in fact most, of the, most of the documents say that the prior employer can notify Contact. the new employer. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, maybe, maybe the, uh, maybe the, uh, the right thing to do if you're an employee and you're going to a new employer and you have a non-compete with your old employer is to provide 
uh, you know, provide the text of it, just the, that provision or something to your new employer, perhaps, or describe it to them or something. I, I don't yeah, know. I definitely think you can provide a redacted version, you know, yeah. just the version that's, that's uh, you know, oftentimes employees want me to write them an opinion letter to show their em- new employer. And I have to explain to them, you know, I'm not the lawyer for the, your new employer. Right. I'm the lawyer for you. Right. So, I mean, this is a very awkward thing. They want some sort of like a, a doctor's note, you know, <laughs> for their If it was as simple employer. as a doctor's note. You know, if it was as simple as that, that'd be much easier. Of course, legal opinions are just sort of a exactly. But but we have good we have good authority from at least the Washington State Bar, like opinion on third party, um, you know, third party opinion practice that an opinion is not an insurance policy. That is not the point of an, right. of a legal opinion. Yeah, and you can you could as you know inside baseball kind of stuff on being a lawyer there that probably uh, we could spend a lot of time on, but wouldn't interest a whole lot of people. Um, the other thing I was going to say about the whole notice to the new employer is if you are, um, especially if you have the technology to detect uh, bad acts by the part of the departing employee, that's a great thing to provide notice to the new employer because that's really going to be a soft spot. They, you know, the non-compete stuff is, yeah, you violated the non-compete, yeah, 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 the new employer, I don't know how, how upset they're going to be about it. But if you write a letter as the old employer to the new employer saying, this person walked out with a bunch of confidential information, I think that should set off some serious alarm bells for the new employer. Well, at that point, I, th- I think at that point, the new employer just terminates the new employee. I've seen that happen. Because <laughs> I don't think you can, I mean, if, that, if, if, if you had credible, you know, a credible reason to believe that that actually occurred... I mean, that's a, not a good sign. It's kind of dangerous to then go ahead and, and um, continue the work. You'd know that there's a good chance that you're going to get tainted by the by the trade secret information. It's yeah, yeah it's a it's a really interesting strategy. I like it a lot. Um, well, philosophically, though, Alex, you said something that's pretty interesting. So we, I mean, the question is, how do we make Seattle more like Silicon Valley? I think I think people I think there's a general belief that that would probably be a good thing. Although, I mean, there's probably arguments against that too because people would say, well. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley is too expensive a place to live. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want Seattle to become like Silicon Valley. I mean, I suppose, but let's just suppose for a minute we want to create the most thriving, dynamic, entrepreneurial eco- ecosystem on the, on the planet. I, I mean, your point about, hey, non-competes actually make the resident companies somewhat lazy when it comes to the really important thing, which is their IP and their confidential information. I think that's a, that's a good philosophical uh, compliment to the argument that you know, if labor can't move, you're just not going to be as dynamic of a place. Right. Labor should be able to move. Secrets should not. Right. And and I think everyone can agree on that. And that sort of should be common ground. And I think that's common ground in the law in California. And, um, you know, obviously it's thriving there. Um, I don't know how California did it. Like, how did they get to a place where, um, where they, they've developed such a robust body of law in favor of individuals. I mean, it's just kind of interesting, right? Well, it was before Silicon Valley was Silicon Valley. That's the interesting thing. It wasn't – Silicon Valley didn't drive it, uh, but it was in existence, and then Silicon Valley emerged there. Now, why did it emerge there? I mean, I, I don't know the history of why it did, but uh, – Obviously, there's a lot going for it in terms of uh, you know places like Stanford and uh, higher education and a great place to live and so forth. So I, I'm not sure I can sit here and make an argument that the the absence of non-competes somehow drove the ecosystem in in Silicon Valley. It might have though. It, it, it might, might have. have helped. It might have. I yeah. mean, to the extent that you can um, just 
you know, you don't have to worry. You don't have to go through a stupid negotiation like my my friend did, uh, who missed out on an amazing, you know, growth opportunity. Um, she twenty million dollars could have funded a referendum for you know statewide approval of a repeal of this law. <laughs> right. Well, that's all we need. We just need one person who made a crap ton of money who feels like we just squeeze to fund the petition process. That's all we need. The problem with most of the, the tech workers is they're too busy to get involved in legislative activity because they're working too hard. Um, but if they ever did, I mean, if there was ever an organization, uh, and I don't mean to say unionization is the way to go, I, I, but... You know, if there was an organization of tech workers who decided to lobby, think of the votes they, they could carry as opposed to the, the business owners side of things. And um, I think there are going to be more stories coming out of tech companies where people have been prevented from, you know, fully realizing the value of their labor, uh, as in the case of your friend, where, where legis- the legislature is going to continue to get pushed. On this, and, and I think you know, if employers were smart, they wouldn't try to enforce them as vigorously as some do. You know, these hairdressers getting sued for violation of non-compete is is absurd. Yeah, yeah. I had I had a friend who had a. Uh, I mean, he he his yeah. He was, I'm pretty certain he made less than fifty thousand dollars a year, and he was basically forced to move to Eastern Washington to take a job with another company, and I just felt pretty unfair. It just felt unfair. I'm not sure how that, you know, how you really think that's good public policy. Yeah, I can't imagine. There was a there's a case in Washington about a guy who got a job as a copier specialist. And he, he was sued by a company called Copier Specialists, Inc. for violating a non-compete. What he did literally was show up at a company and fix the copy machine. And they said, well, we gave him the specialized training. They gave him a six-week training course on fixing the copy machine. And he was going to a competitor. And they said, we want to stop him from going to the competitor. And the court said, you've got to be kidding. Right. No, we're not going to do that. That's not a your, – your six-week training program is not enough of a legitimate interest in keeping this guy from working. He didn't have any customer contact. He didn't build up you know, relationships with people right. uh, about that that you need to protect. Um, which leads, I guess, segues into a good discussion about what kinds of relationships with people is enough to justify enforcing a non-compete and, and, you know, relationships with vendors, relationships with customers. Those are all things that could uh, enforce a non-compete, but they might not. And that's my biggest problem with non-compete law. It's so uncertain. People come to me and they want answers, both businesses and employees, and it's hard to give them real solid answers with the exception of a few kinds of cases that we have in Washington that we can say, well, if you have somebody sign a non-compete six months after they start working and you don't give them any additional money for it, we know, boom, slam dunk, not enforceable. Other than those few slam dunks, we kind of tell people you might win and you might lose. It's hard to give people better than a 50 or 60% chance one way or the other. And I think that's a terrible way to run a, run a railroad. Right. Um, yeah. Do you want, do you want to talk about the differences between um, how non-competes are are enforceable or unenforceable in the context of employees versus independent contractors? Like, so if if somebody's hired as an employee, you've got kind of the default rules that apply. If someone's hired as an independent contractor, just come in and code part time or something like that. Doesn't you know the, the lines drawn in a bit different place, isn't it? It is drawn in a different place, and I think there's some tension between the idea of an independent contractor under tax law having to be truly independent, and that means working for other businesses. That is one of the tests under the IRS test for what is truly an independent contractor versus an employee. 
they're out there do selling they have other their customers. Yeah, yeah, they have other customers. Are they out there selling their services to other uh, businesses? Um, and I think from the business standpoint, you could say, well, you can be selling to other businesses, but not in this competitive space. So let's say you're an expert at uh, web design. Hey, I just don't want you to go and do web design for my particular competitors, but you can do web design for every other kinds of business out there. Um, so I do think there is room for non-competes to be enforceable in the independent contractor relationship, but they have to be, I think, even more focused and targeted um, and fair to the independent contractor in light of the fact that they are supposed to be a free agent, independent. Right. And if you make it that they're not, then what you do is you run the risk of them being classified as an employee right. and you being hit with all these back taxes, Social Security withholdings and everything else on that. So, uh, you you know, do not try this at home. Yeah. If you are <laughs> doing non-competes for independent yeah. contractors, get a lawyer and think through those issues. Sure, sure. So speaking of uh, worker classification issues, this is the one thing that comes up all the time for startups because they frequently start as a founder and then he hires a couple people to do some work and they're contractors. Um, and then... One question. I mean, this 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 is a completely legitimate pathway, especially if there's just a handful of people. But the state, if you had like a fairly large group of independent contractors working for you, say a couple dozen, and then you get audited by the state, they like to see each one of these people have their own independent business license, exactly, and a UBI number and everything else. Um, that's the state's position, at least in the in the cases where you have a bunches of people. I don't. I mean, I think the the risk that you know, if you just have a handful or small numbers probably small and negligible, but the bigger numbers frequently just not employers don't demand that these contractors have their own business licenses. And it's kind of, a, it's kind of a little bit of a miss with a bigger number of people. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you that the number of people involved, but I've seen the state go after like uh, a small dance studio that employs dance instructors as independent contractors. These people who come in and teach two or three classes a week. Yeah. And the state wants to come after them and say, hey, you haven't played unemployment into the unemployment system. Right. You haven't paid into, you know, workers' comp and all this stuff. And these were really employees for those purposes. So I've seen the state go kind of crazy, in my opinion, in trying to... Did the state in that say in that in that case or in that instance say, well, especially it's because these dancers, these dance instructors don't have their own business licenses. Is that... <laughs> they probably did. I actually <laughs> didn't get involved in the case because this poor person couldn't afford to pay. The yeah. dance studio didn't really want to pay a lawyer to do it, so she ended up trying to negotiate with the state herself. But I'm sure that was one of the factors. These, I mean, And what part-time dance instructor or yoga instructor who comes in as an independent contractor is going to get a business license? I yeah, mean, that is so Although unrealistic. It is 15, although it's fifteen bucks, it is only fifteen bucks, and it does put you in the system to pay your B and O taxes, so you don't forget. Because you're supposed to be B and O taxes on. I mean, dance instruction would be taxed at the same rate as legal services. I think services another. I, I think. Why, why not? So you know, one point seventy percent gross or something like that. Of course, for the employer, I mean, the cost of chipping money into the employment uh, tax coffers in the at the state level is really not that great. What this is really about is the federal unemployment tax burden, right? Because once you concede there's employees for state law purposes or for state unemployment tax purposes and state workers, you know, insurance purposes, then you're conceding the, I presume you're conceding the federal tax issue. We just crossed the threshold of my knowledge. <laughs> we just went, jump, well, the, jump the shark of my experiential well, I'm, I'm glad we got there before the end of the show. <laughs> well, <That's> so, <laughs> you know, some of the, uh, but I mean, I, honestly, like I, like, I just don't think the state like UE amounts like 
turn out to be that much money, I think. I don't know for sure. I, no, I agree. And I, I, you know, the problem is I've looked at this a little bit and the definition of employee under the IRS yeah. is different than the definition of employee under the Employment Security Department Act, which is different than under the workers' comp. So there are three different definitions of employee, which again goes to my point earlier about non-competes is why does the law have to be like this? Right. Why do we need to make it so complex that there's three different definitions of employees? Right. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, so, but but it is what it is, and and it's you know, job security for lawyers, and it's traps for the unwary for businesses. Right. Um, uh, but I, I think you're right that ultimately the federal test is the one that's going to be the big whammy um, that you want to make sure you're staying in in compliance with. Right. So what? Uh, so a lot of founders uh, listen to our show, uh, and so what? What? What's your sort of parting advice for these folks in terms? Of what? What should they think about in terms of uh, employment law and minimum wage law and worker classification? What are some just generalized pointers to tell people before you before you leave us? Yeah. Well, I got some general pointers, things, pet peeves that I've seen over and over. Don't defer salary. Right. Good point. Don't you, defer salary. Yeah. <laughs> Do not defer salary. Do not say you're getting equity. We'll pay you when we can. You're basically working for free for your equity. Don't do that because right. there's that doesn't suffice to satisfy the minimum wage laws, especially if the business doesn't succeed um, and they don't get anything out of the equity. Um, use non-competes, uh, I would say, sparingly, thoughtfully, and deliberately and enforce them even more thoughtfully and deliberately. The worst thing to have happen is to spend a bunch of money on a non-compete suit and lose and think about the message that sends to everybody else uh, who works for you. Um, protect your trade secrets. You know, use password protected, you know, files where you store these things. If you think they have great economic value that you're going to be harmed irreparably by somebody using, then treat it that way internally on the server, in files that are password protected. Put confidential. How, how hard is it to put confidential on documents? Use a confidential stamp or macro on, on all of the documents that are created that are confidential. And have people sign, you know, at a, at a minimum, have them sign the, you know, inventions assignment uh, and proprietary information agreement, um, and uh, and protect yourself with non-solicitation agreements as well. I'm I'm yeah. feeling like I'm missing something. No, these are all great. These are all great points. Um, yeah, and on the deferred salary thing, the uh, that's a really common mistake, and it's just the and the reason why it's a terrible error is because uh, one, uh, it's supposed to go on your balance sheet, right? If you're deferring something, it's supposed to go on your balance sheet. Um, two, it's a concession you owe the money. Uh, three, somebody could sue you for that money individually. It's there's an unlawful wage statute which says employee employee like see, you know executives boards directors can be sued individually for these amounts and, and it unpaid. happens every day. In Plus Washington. that statute provides a two x in attorney's fees provisions in favor of the employee, and you've already conceded that they had wages deferred, so it's a bad spot. And then thirdly. Um, you know, the right way to do it is like, and this is pretty common, a company is running out of money, say, and they want to extend their runway. And so they're going to go to everybody and say, hey, we're going to take salary cuts or we're going to, um, you know, we're going to do something on salaries. The right way to do it is just to have everyone enter into a simple salary reduction agreement, which says, for now, my salary is whatever it is, the minimum wage or whatever the dollar amount is. And then, by the way, when we achieve the following milestone, you know, raise $2 million in equity financing, you know, from a third party, then you 
will get a bonus. And the bonus will be equal to, oh, the amount of salary you've forgone for some period of time. You can formulaically describe it, but it's only payable if there's this milestone which allows it to be paid. So if the milestone's never met, you're not in the box. Right. I mean, you could even be squirrelier about it if you wanted to and say you'll be paid a bonus, you know, at our discretion that we will sure. formulate. Sure. But, but your point is well taken, which is that you absolutely should do something like that that protects yourself and says, when we hit this milestone, this will all be reevaluated and we'll, right. you know, we'll yeah. sit down and talk about it then at, at a minimum. Yeah. And then, and then you avoid, too, the other thing people don't think about at all is deferred salary uh, could be an ERISA plan. Could be. Uh, Again, we're pressing up against my <laughs> my lack of knowledge. It Which, could be. <laughs> could be. Uh, and then you know the. Uh, oh, I don't know what else. Anyways. Yeah, so. but there's there's definitely a lot of negative consequences, and and I will tell you that the most painful place for uh, an individual founder to be is in a place where you've worked your butt off to make a business succeed. You've treated people fairly in your mind and in your heart, and you have. And the business hasn't succeeded. You've lost a lot of money. You've lost family and friends' money. And then you're sued right. by somebody personally right. for some deferred salary when you yourself was def were deferring salary, too. None of those are defenses. The fact right. that you deferred salary, the fact that you worked hard, the fact that you treated people fairly, those are not defenses to a wage suit. So right. it's it's a sad place to be for, for folks. So it's important to... Avoid, avoid that place. <laughs> well, on that happy note, Mike, do you, any, do you have any party thoughts, Mike? No, no, that's, that sounds like a good a warning. To, to, it's like, hey, hey, founders out there, you know, don't don't be that guy. <laughs> don't don't defer the salary. Don't don't be the the guy who who has personal liability for his company after it goes out. And uh, yeah, so so do it right. It's important. Make sure everybody's either get, getting paid minimum wage or uh, or or getting paid some, you know, getting paid up front. That's it's good good advice. I think that's you know that's a pretty big pitfall to fall into. Um, you don't want to you don't want to do that. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, that's been really really interesting. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Alex Higgins. How can people find out more about your practice and and um, and you? Like, where, where should people go if they want to learn more about you? Thanks for that. www.alexjhiggins.com. That's yeah. probably the best place to and, to go. And it's H I G G I N S. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that, Joe. Thanks for the plug, you guys. It's been fun. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, for coming me. on. Super, super fun great. having you on the show. Thanks, sir. Yeah, and thanks, everyone else. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week.